Welcome back to Go and Make. This week we're asking an important question. How do you revive what's dead? You know, sometimes in our church we see the doom and gloom or we hear the stats, we, we look around and maybe we're not seeing a lot of encouragement or excitement in our church. We know that Christ has won the victory. We know he promised us that we will win the eternal victory. The gates of hell shall not prevail against us. This week, we're talking with Jane Gunther, who is the director of the Catholic Renewal Center and the director of the Archdiocesan Eucharistic Revival, which is plugged into the National Eucharistic Revival. And it's a great conversation, and I think it's it's going to give us a lot of hope of how we can move forward in the church to bring back to life this amazing spirit that exists in the church, that knowing that Christ has won the victory. So can't wait for this conversation. Of course, like and subscribe. Go on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Give us a rating. Give us some comments. It helps other people find the podcast. And without further ado, let's dive right in. Welcome to Go and Make from the Archdiocese of St. Louis equipping you to live the great commission of Jesus Christ to go and make disciples of all nations. We are really excited this week to be joined by Jane Gunther, who is the director of the Catholic Renewal Center in the Archdiocese of St. Louis, which helps us understand and unpack the gifts of the Holy Spirit and really just live as disciples of Christ. And Jane is also the uh, chairperson for the diocese, point person for the Eucharistic Revival. She serves on the National USCCB Committee for the Eucharistic Revival as well, and is really just helping us, all of us in St. Louis, understand uh, how to evangelize and how the Eucharist is part of that evangelization. So we are so excited you are here with us this week, Jane. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's kind of a fun little project we have going on here, and we've known each other for many years. I think it's it's kind of fun. you know, my wife used to work at the diocese, so she got to know you back then. Yeah. And uh, you were at our wedding, actually, and then yeah. and you realized you knew my grandma really well from charismatic <laughs> renewal stuff in the 1970s. I remember yeah. she used to just tell the best stories of the charismatic conferences and Father Herman, now Bishop Herman, and his yeah. engagement with the renewal and just the, yeah. the fruit that that led to in their own lives. And really, mm-hmm. I think what's kind of cool is I wouldn't be sitting here today unless my grandparents were involved in the charismatic renewal, that they were so uh, just overcome with the Holy Spirit and instilling that into their own children and grandchildren and the witness of their faith life and just that docility. Uh, I'm just, I'm just so grateful for it to see this, the fruit it's born in my own life. It's so cool. Yeah. And it, you know, and I grew up in the parish that your grandparents were in and that's really my introduction to them came through that because I was really just in, grade school. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Mary Queen of Peace in Webster Groves. That's if anyone's listening right. out there from there, a little Yay. shout out for that great parish. I spent a lot of time there as a kid. You know? Yeah. So tell me a little bit. So this is kind of a unique role. You work uh, a lot with charismatic things and a lot yeah. with um, just helping people pastorally. Yeah. So how did you get into that work? So first of all, maybe what led you just to, to own your own faith and really make a decision to follow Christ in a real way. Yeah. And then eventually what led you to ministry as a, as a career as well? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, really, it did kind of start at Mary Queen of Peace. Um, I had a profound experience in kindergarten. That might sound sound really crazy to people. But, you know, Mary Queen of Peace had all these statues of Mary in every classroom. And um, part of my really journey and story, it started in kindergarten where I was standing in front of the statue of Mary at the end of our day in kindergarten. And uh, I just got caught up 
really. And uh, my teacher's name was Mrs. Shepherd. So Mrs. Shepherd actually let everyone else leave, and she walked me home to my parents' house um, just to say, Jane had this profound experience with Mary today. <laughs> and um, I mean, and it was just one of those like memories in my own faith walk that just uh, was so profound and led me really the rest of the way in some regards. Uh, so I can always trace everything back to that. Well, how incredible that she was aware of what was going on with that too. And I think that as we think about evangelization and walking with others, you know, we, we want to try to ask questions and invite, but also be aware of what the Lord is doing in their life and encourage it. That's a really beautiful thing she did for you. She did. And I remember we were standing in the vestibule at my home when we arrived and she knocked on the door and my mom answered and she's like, yes. And she said, you know, you just need to care for her tenderly because of this experience. And, you know, really that's, uh, kind of ch changed a word that um, really our family kind of revolved around, which was just cherishing. My mom really enjoyed like enveloping us in knowing that we were cherished. And so I do think that that like started a little journey for me. Um, but then honestly, my mom then at the age of 10, uh, Sister Zoe Galensky, who actually was a part of writing Lumen Gentium in Rome for the Vatican II documents, um, who was from St. Louis, a so daughter's, a heavy hitter right there, daughters yeah. of charity. She came to do a 12-week series on Lumen Gentium when I was 10 at Mary Queen of Peace. And my mom took me to every one of those uh, presentations. And then oddly enough, later in my life, when I was acquiring my master's in divinity, uh, Sister Zoe became one of my teachers. Um, and we became very close friends. And uh, she even remembered, she was like, you were that pigtailed little girl who was at, <laughs> at every one of my talks. So it's like, I think that God just had his hand in a lot of things in my life. And um, it's never that I really turned away, but I did pursue a degree in architecture. And um, so it didn't look like I was going to move into ministry in any sort of way. I always taught PSR from the time I was in high school, all through college at wherever I was, whatever parish there was that had a need for that. Um, so I was very living my faith and giving of myself in just catechesis to little children and um, but it was really my third grade teacher from Mary Queen of Peace, who was a Loretto sister, who um, invited me to come uh, help in her classroom because she had been diagnosed with cancer. And uh, that actually brought me into a life in ministry because um, actually I was just there with her for six weeks and she actually died of the cancer. And so the principal was like, well, you can't leave these children now. And uh, I was like, but I don't even have a degree. I don't know how to teach. Yeah, yeah, I was I'm like, I don't help. have a degree. Yeah. I was just helping. And um, so the Loretto's put me in Webster College and I got a master's in education uh, as I was teaching that group of students and um, and then became the youth minister and et cetera. So that, that's Isn't that how... the story that everyone who's moderately young at a parish who loves Jesus, they're like, please be the youth minister for a little while, you know? <laughs> exactly. It's a dangerous thing to be young and in love with Jesus. Yeah, yeah it's, that's exactly true. And it's so funny because I, I'll never forget um, 
Father Gary Vollmer was the associate. He had, I think he had, was like a newly ordained. And um, my husband, my now husband, had asked me, proposed to me at Christmas. And when I came back in January to... um, to, to teach the uh, father Volmer walked up to me and he said, I have a little proposal for you. And all I could think was, is I've already been proposed to <laughs> right. what kind of proposal do you want to make? And that's when he asked if I would also be the youth minister. <laughs> so yeah, it is kind of funny. You just have to, I say, you know, God is constantly making proposals to us and it's just it takes our yes. Well, and it's an important lesson too. I mean, I think we hear these stories of like some of the great saints who fell in love with the Lord or like St. Therese wanted to enter the convent at age, what was it, 12 when yeah. she first wanted to enter and finally did at 14. But the Lord can do profound things with us even when we're young, but it's really just a step-by-step journey Absolutely. to get to where you are. You didn't start where you are now working at the diocese and, and working with the, the, the charismatic stuff and you could survive. Well, you started just by saying that first yes, mm-hmm. and then the next yes, and then the next yes. And then the Lord actually gives you the Holy Spirit and equips you and prepares you every step along the way, too. I would so agree with that, Brian. I mean, it's that that's the way it's worked in my life, you know? Like, I never planned on any of these things. <laughs> I never planned on doing what I was, what I am doing today, but... Uh, he certainly opened the door and walked me through it. If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. So eventually you ended up at a, at a parish as a pastoral associate, right? Uh-huh, St. Alban Row for 12 years. I served there as their um, first as their liturgist and then as uh, their pastoral associate. Wonderful. And then eventually here at the Catholic Center, uh, Catholic Renewal Center, uh-huh. doing this kind of ministry. And now you're in the midst of this Eucharistic revival. So yeah. for folks maybe who haven't heard heard of the Eucharistic Revival. Hopefully there's none of them out there, but there might be some who haven't heard of the Eucharistic Revival. Uh, Where did it come from? Why are we doing it? And then we'll get and talk about maybe uh, what we hope to gain from from this process. Sure. Well, I mean, really the initiative about even having a national Eucharistic Revival came out of um, a committee at the USCCB that Bishop Barron was in charge of. And um, it was a response actually to a Pew study that stated Uh, through the Pew study that um, really only one-third of our practicing Catholics, so this is an The mass-going ones. Yes, the mass-going ones, believed in the real presence of the Eucharist. And so the bishops were like, especially Bishop Barron now, uh, you know, said, you know, that can't, that cannot be the way we remain. And, um, and we've got to do something to awaken people to the understanding of the real presence. And so he was the chair for that committee. And then, um, you know, the USCCB has, you know, these terms and people get turned over turned over to a new chair. And so, um, when he left being the chair of the evangelization and catechesis committee, uh, Bishop Andrew Cousins from Crookston, Minnesota, he was at St. Paul for as an auxiliary, auxiliary for a while. And of yeah. course, I have to mention, people always roll their eyes, but he's a Benedictine College alum That's as well. Right. So a proud raven yeah. just to get the eye roll out there for people, you know. Yeah, and a net ministry. Right. Uh, yeah, just, to, I yeah. mean, really, 
think, think of someone who's charismatic and full of the spirit and just the perfect guy for the moment yeah. that, that the church needs right now. Absolutely. It's just been great, and it's been great to work with him. Um, and so it really is this response. And, um, you know, so a lot of people dismissed that Pew study and said, oh, we just didn't ask the right questions. So the executive committee that I am on for the USCCB, we decided to do another poll and, and survey um, of a broader, uh, honestly, people who even were not practicing um, their faith, uh, another study, and the statistics were basically the and same. You put the poll in the field and it tells you where people yeah. really are. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, the beautiful thing, the one of the things that in that study that the, that the executive committee put out that I found fascinating was that We asked a question of if you uh, could receive catechesis, if you could actually receive some education about the Eucharist, would you be receptive to that? And 78% said yes. Right. So maybe like 30% said they actually believe what we believe about the Eucharist, but they're hungry. They're hungry. And that, I mean, so to me, that was great encouragement as to why this Eucharistic revival at this point in the history of the church was so essential. Well, and I think, again, like trying to extract like broader evangelization points out of here too, is that we live in a very fast-paced world. We live in a very superficial world sometimes in a world where we're actually really afraid to go deep with people and ask them those questions. But really, there's a quiet desperation or a quiet longing that's just built into all of us that we actually want more and we know there's more out there and maybe we're afraid to unpack what that means in our lives or maybe we're afraid of what the change is that the Lord's going to ask of us personally. Um, But if we ask, people will respond. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and it is just a deep, a deep hunger and thirst to know truth. You know, like I know that, you know, Time Magazine came out with the, we live in the post-truth society and that can be true, but there is an essential truth that each of us need. Yeah. And and the Eucharist really, you know, the catechism talks about it as the source and summit of mm-hmm. the Christian life. I love, uh, I think it's Flannery O'Connor said, if the Eucharist is just a symbol, then to hell with it. You know, like, yeah. what are we doing? What's the point? And it really is the foundation of who we are as Catholics, the Eucharistic sacrifice, uh, the, the representation of Christ's sacrifice on Calvary for us is what draws us into union with the Father, but it's also what sends us out on mission to the world mm-hmm. as well. Absolutely, absolutely. So it's a great this this uh, you know revival. Uh, I think uh, you had kind of mentioned is a um, it's a national movement that is really being watched from all over the world. So they're kind of letting us pilot something that the whole world is really looking at because they know that this that we all need a new fire. Yeah, and, and right now in the church too, there's a synod on synodality, which is mm-hmm. a lot about listening and accompaniment and evangelization. Yeah. And I really and some people maybe try to pit those two things against each other, but oh. I think that's just silliness because really they go so well hand in hand. Uh John Paul II talks about uh, his document on the lady, talks about the communion and mission and how they're so intricately linked and that the communion with one another as Christians and the communion we experience again with the Father and with Jesus is ultimately what leads us out to others. And we can't actually go out to others well and listen well unless we know where we're leading them back to. And, And when we become more aware of our own closeness with the Lord, 
we want other people to have it, and then we also can become close to them in imitating the way that Jesus became man to become close to us, the way that he gives himself as gift to us mm-hmm. every single day in the Eucharist. Yes. I mean, it's such a point of self-gift. And, um, and really, the USCCB and our committee, um, there's been a great document put together about the the synergy between the synodality uh, of the synod and the Eucharistic revival. Well, and we know everyone reads USCCB documents, so well, I'm sure again, I think we'll be distributing it, no, that other ways. Well, and just to, un- <laughs> but to unpack it, right? Yeah. So, you know, maybe yeah. our leaders read it, you know, yeah. the bishops and our pastors and, yeah. and folks like you and I, yeah. and that can get integrated into our, our daily lives. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one, one thing that I think that we want to talk about mm-hmm. in terms of the revival is, okay, well, it's, you know, it's not just belief in the Eucharist. That's obviously really fundamentally important, but how does the right. Eucharist change the way I live? So I think maybe could you talk a little bit about ways you see that being possible, that if we really plug into understanding and believing and, and receiving the graces of the Eucharist, it can impact our day-to-day lives. Sure. So, um, you know, I think that um, one of the primary things that happen when we receive the Eucharist is an understanding of the docility of living where the Lord asks us to take him. So, um, you know, I think that part of what the reception of the Eucharist does is gives us um, a receptivity to be led by him to where he needs us to go. And um, so that puts us out on mission, right? I mean, it's like we have beautiful adoration chapels and I, uh, you know, I really um, love that that has been on the rise among a lot of our young people. Yeah, we have more here than right. almost anywhere, right? We're right. Really, we don't, well, I don't think people realize how blessed we are in St. Yeah. Louis with so many adoration chapels. Well, Cardinal chapels. Regali, like really, when he was uh, the archbishop here, that was his thrust, you know? I mean, it was um, his... Great work uh, was opening and encouraging parishes to open up Eucharistic adoration chapels. I think that what has a little bit been lost is that that a Eucharistic adoration chapel is a place of encounter to hear and then be sent. And I think too often sometimes people are going to Eucharistic adoration chapels and not getting the thrust of the mission of being sent. And that's why I think it's so, like, when we sit in the presence of the Eucharist and when we receive the Eucharist, we should also be, like, really abandoning ourselves to this docility of how His Spirit is going to lead us to to care for His people. And, and you look in Scripture, every time someone meets Jesus and is healed, mm-hmm. they go out on mission. So you have a woman at the well, right? You know, mm-hmm. come see a man who told me everything I ever did. She comes, she meets Jesus and and interacts with him, and immediately she goes back to the town where she wasn't real popular or well-liked or respected, and she's bringing them all to the Lord. So it's when we sit with the Lord and let him heal us, so we don't just go and sit just for the sake of sitting, but something has to actually happen in us. That, right. And I think sometimes th- people think of the Eucharist in such a passive way that I just I receive Jesus or I sit with Jesus and I pray and and, and it's fine and I'm just going to go back and, yeah. and do my thing. But really, that prayer should lead to fruitfulness and to change and to action. And if it doesn't, then we're maybe not receiving all the graces of the Eucharist that we should be or could be. Right. Well, and I just think 
it's so true. Like the healing presence of the Eucharist within us or even in his, in his presence in an adoration chapel um, is so underutilized. And so like when last year, when the diocesan year of the Eucharistic revival, we went around the diocese having these um, evenings of adoration and healing services at the parishes, we took a white cloak, uh, you know, and, and took it all around this archdiocese, the same long white cloak that was draped from the monstrance at each of these churches that we utilized for this. Um, and it was so beautiful to see people just go and touch that cloak and receive healing. And it's like, so from the power of faith and belief in the Eucharistic presence and the healing power, people were receiving great healings. And I think you're so right, um, you know, it's like um, we need to be healed in order to go out on mission. And we all need healing, and I know that. Uh, but we have a source that's amazing. But we're not always very honest with ourselves about that mm -hmm. either, too. You know, we're really good at prayers of supplication or sometimes even Thanksgiving, but mm -hmm. I just don't know that um, our habit, and uh, like looking at myself in the mirror here too, right, that our uh -huh. habit of prayer is always, um, you know, I'm trying to get what I need for the day, and maybe it's a little short-sighted almost. And I'm not really, uh, unless we really make extended times of prayer. So we should all pray every single day. And uh, Father Hazing was on recently. He said he recommends 30 minutes a day sure. of quiet mental prayer. And I know that's not easy. Right. That's not accessible for a lot of people unless you make time for it. Again, once a week, holy hour is a beautiful thing and we should do it too. And that's a mm -hmm. great practice to sign up for that time in the Adoration Chapel. But when it becomes part of our habit, and we get, you know, you have a spiritual director, or you go to confession regularly, you have a lot of help in discerning the areas of your heart that the Lord needs to heal. Exactly. And if you don't, if you don't do that, then we're just going to stay stagnant. We're going to stay the same and we're not going to be ready for that mission. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, you hear the adage all the time, like, you know, wounded people, wound people, mm -hmm. but healed exactly. people, healed people. And when exactly. we realize how healed we are, Pope Francis has that great line in the joy of the gospel. It's like, you know, um, for if we've, Receive the love which restores meaning to our lives. How can we fail to share that with others? Exactly. You can't help it. You that absolutely right? can't help it. That's right. You have to be aware of what that healing is. Yeah, yeah. And I, I've, I've gotten in the habit, Brian, really, of teaching people, you know, tithe the first 10 minutes of your day to the Lord, and it will change everything. If you just, when you wake up, the first 10 minutes isn't coffee and everything else that you do in the morning, but it's really for the Lord and that you just spend those first 10 minutes, you will find that you spend other moments in the day right. more readily because you tithe the first 10 minutes. And it can be hard, right? I, for me, like I know my alarm is on my phone. So I, I go to shut off my alarm and I'm like, let's see what I missed in the, what, the six hours I was asleep overnight. <laughs> I really didn't miss that wow, much. Wow, you or were asleep I, six I know, hours? Six <laughs> hours. Uh, that's the children, you know, they, they yeah. keep me up, they run me ragged. But um, I didn't miss that much. And if I turn the other way on my wall, I have a picture of the divine mercy. And that I try to make that my morning offering, right? Jesus I trust in you. But the temptation sometimes is, is the, the dichotomy is funny. It's like they're just so different. And I have to remind myself always to make that morning offering, to spend that quiet moment before you dive into all the busyness and the other stuff. Yeah. 
so yeah. hard, um, but it's worth it. It's yeah. worth it. It's definitely enriching. And, um, you know, another practice that some people have found, um, I have a priest friend who has, you know, after he distributes communion, uh, he, he actually touches places on his own body that he would like the Lord to heal. And I think, you know, part of us is like if, if we're receiving the Eucharist, you know, receive the power of that. And in the places where you need it the most. <laughs> well, and it's wild, right? I think that we forget how powerful the Lord is mm, sometimes. Like absolutely. this is a God who parted the Red Sea and raises the dead mm-hmm. and does all these things. And we don't, like we ask for stuff and we ask <laughs> for help for others and for the, the things we need day to day. But I don't think we ask for the things that we actually really deeply need. Right. Because maybe we don't have that full trust that God will provide for it or that he can provide for it. And again, mm-hmm. it's... it's We've said this word, I think, the four times now, docility and openness to, okay, Lord, your will be done. And again, that's that's a hard prayer. Yeah, it sure is. But an important one. Yeah. So what else are we doing in the Archdiocese for, for the, revival? the revival? So yeah. what's and coming I, up? I think uh, there's lots of things coming up. I, I do want to um, emphasize, because I think that this is what people have objection to about this whole Eucharistic revival because they think, oh my gosh, it's just another program. Um, Renewal is a program. Revival is reviving something that is dead. Something that has been totally lost is going to be come into a fullness. And, um, And so, you know, it's been richly said by many, many that, um, the discernment to call this a Eucharistic revival was so essential because um, because it isn't about a program that we're going to do that's going to equate to something. It's about really bringing back to life something that the Lord really wants. And we've seen revivals in the history of the United States. There was a revival yeah. that happened in Kentucky recently, right? Right, Under Asbury. The Protestant Church. Yeah. yeah, talk about that for a minute, would you? Yeah, Asbury, you know, I mean, they got together and did praise and worship on this college campus. I've had a lot of friends uh, who I know throughout this country who made pilgrimages there. Um, you know, it's like the event was really only supposed to be uh, one night. It turned into many, many weeks of just constant praise and worship. The same thing has happened in New York and Cardinal Dolan's. In the Catholic Church, too. Yeah, not just, right. not just yeah, the Protestant that was Church, a Protestant, who's good at but, charismatic but stuff in, sometimes. You know, right. a priest in, um, in New York uh, opened up his church, and, uh, and they have had continuous praise and adoration going since January. Still. Yes. It's unbelievable. It is. It's yeah. un- it's it's just so it's very clear that the revival is happening. Places are experiencing that. Um you know, and yes, in the history of the church there's been a lot of moments of total revival where you know, and we all know, we look at this world and look at what happened in in Israel and the, the war in Ukraine, it's it's evident that there is a dire need for revival in the hearts of all mankind. And so um, I think we want to embrace this yeah, moment right. in the U.S. right now to say, yes, look at what can happen. Look at what uni- unifying love can, can actually do in a country. Um, and um, yeah, and I think the dialogue between uh, the Christian denominations is the increase in that in our country just because of the Eucharistic Revival initiative has been absolutely stunning. 
And, and, you know, you said it's not a program. No. Nope. But programs get a bad rap sometimes, right? Because sometimes programs are just the excuse we need to invite someone or the excuse sure. we need to unpack the graces that are already offered, right? Like the, the right. Holy Spirit has poured out amazing graces for us through the church at Pentecost on us always. Sure. And sometimes we just need maybe a formalized way of, of asking for it or doing it together or having something that I have an excuse to invite someone to, and then I can walk with them in this revival and seeing the Lord work in their heart and in their life. So it's, it's just a way that we can, as disciples, accompany other people, walk with other people, and just have the reason to bring up the conversation sometimes too. Right, and the Eucharistic revival is trying to make, uh, you know, materials for that very purpose, Brian, very accessible to everyone. Um, there's the Jesus and the Eucharist uh, kind of like little book study that um, really anyone could do in their own home, uh, you know, and they could get together just their friends and and open that up. And like you say, when you open up the discussion to a deeper level, nothing but good happens out of that. So, um, you know, in our own diocese, we're trying to promote that every parish have a parish rep so that we can be in communication, um, my office and them, in terms of really delivering those very uh, practical ways in which these conversations can start happening amongst people in the parish. Um, so, you know, we would challenge those pastors who haven't named a parish rep yet. Please do so. We have a lot of things coming up that will need somebody who can coordinate these efforts within your parish. Um, one of the primary things is um, coming up uh, will be the Invite One Back campaign from the USCCB. There'll be postcards. We're going to start by just inviting everyone in the parishes to actually write and uh, an intercessory prayer card for someone who they know they would like to invite back to the church. And so um, we're going to start with prayer, intercession for them before we even make any invite. And, uh, and so that will be coming up here shortly uh, in January. And then at the end of January, January 27th, we're in, um, for the parish reps and anyone else who wants to attend, uh, we're going to have an event on the anniversary of uh, Pope John Paul II, St. Pope John Paul II's visit here to our archdiocese and um, on January 27th. That's 25 years, 25 right? I remember it well. Years. January 26th, 1999 was the youth rally. That was the youth I rally. Really changed my life for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah, that was beautiful. And then, um, yeah, I was there with our youth group, but uh, I also was at the closing mass on the 27th at the Dome. And um, at that mass, uh, Pope. John Paul II ended his homily that day with Mary, Mother of Mercy, teach the people of the Archdiocese to be merciful. And so I'm, I'm using that line as a way for us to launch what will be um, our effort for every parish to actually construct a box of mercy that when the pilgrims who will be starting in San Francisco, we're on the Sarah route uh, to Indianapolis, which is a the long, nationwide Eucharistic um, the very procession, first right? ever, the very first ever national Eucharistic pilgrimage. Um, there will be 12 pilgrims starting from the 
north, the south, the east, and the west. We are on the west route. Um, they'll be walking from San Francisco through all the states west of us uh, into the Archdiocese of St. Louis and then on to Belleville and Springfield and then Indianapolis. And what's and, happening in, in Indianapolis? Can you talk about that just for a minute? Yeah, the Indianapolis, uh, the Eucharistic Congress. We have not had a National Eucharistic Congress since 1976. And so this so is... we're due. Yeah, we're really overdue, and um, and so the hope is is about eighty thousand people will descend on Indianapolis. Mostly, uh, some of the missionaries who have been trained, uh, Eucharistic missionaries who are coming from across every diocese to be commissioned um, at that four day, uh, well, five day event. Uh, yeah, we keep talking about how powerful Seek is going to be in St. Louis with twenty twenty five thousand Catholics, and this is even going to be. Uh, three or four times that size. Incredible just what um, the invitation and the devotion to the Eucharist can do and and really bring people together in a a way that we haven't seen in a long time. Yeah, and just top-notch speakers and workshops and uh, events happening all over Indianapolis that uh, both... Um, adults and children can get, uh, in, you know, involved in and embrace. When you talked about, and, we, and there's a good and coming together for the event itself, but it doesn't exist for the sake of itself, right? Nope, you said it's, it's a about, launch point. It's a launch point to mission. send. We're just getting started. Yep, we're just getting started. So this is not the end point at all. The whole point really of the Eucharistic revival was to set a fire for mission. Yeah. So that I love it. Yeah, it's hope. like, you know, again, we talk about, all things new, or we talk about evangelization, what we're trying to do in the archdiocese. You know, we had to evangelize before all things new mm-hmm. and after, like it was always our mission and Eucharistic revival is always our mission, but it's good to name it. Yeah. And it's good to, to say we have accountability about really trying to unpack those graces that each of us are offered through the Eucharist uh, because we want people to know and love Jesus. It is the ultimate gift. It's changed our lives, I know, yeah. for both of us. Yeah. Um, we want people to live forever in heaven with Jesus. And uh, the more they can be with him here on earth, it's going to help them do that. So thank you so much for for coming in today. Yeah. Uh, a great conversation. I think it gives people a lot of um, food for thought and practical ways just to renew their own prayer life, renew their own Eucharistic devotion so they can lead someone else to Jesus in that way too. Any other closing thoughts here? Yeah, I think I just want to also make sure that people kind of mark their calendars for when the pilgrims are coming through our archdiocese, July 5th, 6th, and 7th of 2024. Those will be jam-packed days with events, one happening out in St. Charles, um, walking from St. Charles Borromeo to St. Peter's with a stop at the um, site of St. Rose Philippine de Chen. Um, and we want to be good hosts to these 12 disciples who are taking that mission to walk across the U.S. And then on the Saturday, they will be working with the Missionaries of Charity to distribute the boxes of mercy that we put together to refugee families in our, in our archdiocese. And then on Sunday, we'll be launching them from the cathedral on their way to Belleville. So I just think it's going to be a jam-packed weekend. I know it's our big fair St. Louis and all of that, but try to carve out a little time to join us in something for the Eucharistic Revival Revival National Pilgrimage, um, which is really the first ever. It's called an Emmaus Moment. 
Um, and so I just ask that you listen for your hearts to be burning. Yeah, and when you when your heart burns, you know what they do? They turned around, they immediately went back to Jerusalem to tell everyone else. So to be set on fire ourselves and to be sent out on mission, it sounds like what we're trying to do here, right? I mean, yeah. the, the spirits move in and, and I love that Archbishop's really behind it too. And he's Absolutely. really excited. He said, you know, I really, he, he's told us no on some other things along the way because he said, I want us to focus on the Eucharistic revival. And I think that's a great discernment as a spiritual father yeah. for all of us. He wants to do this well because he knows it's yes. going to be impactful. So exactly. beautiful. So Brian, thanks for having me. Yeah. This can has you, been... can you offer us a prayer on our way out of here? Sure. So in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit, amen. So good and gracious God, we praise and thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus in the Eucharist. May we uh, be ever more transformed by his physical presence with us, and may we embrace others, bringing that presence in fullness to each of them. We make this prayer in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, Jane, for that great conversation. If you want to learn more about the Eucharistic revival and what we're doing here in the Archdiocese, just go on over to archstl.org. There's a logo, a button on the homepage. Click Eucharistic revival. They've got upcoming events, all the things going on, and how you can be a part of it. As always, if you have topics, questions, comments, concerns, criticisms, critiques, whatever it might be, shoot us an email at evangelization at archstl.org. We want to hear from you about what you need to live the Great Commission to go and make disciples. Thanks for listening.